today on Ag News Daily. To sum that up, USDA can investigate, you know, the, these the volatile cattle markets. But they, if they find something, they can't necessarily criminally uh, persecute. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Ag News Daily podcast. Just the girls today. Delaney Howell here, joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. We had another little bit of rain last night here in Lubbock. So I, I guess today's going pretty good. Almost the weekend. So we just got to push through just a little bit more. Absolutely. We certainly do. And we got to push through some news for today because we've got a fantastic interview coming up here in just a little bit with Scott Bennett of the American Farm Bureau Federation talking about Farm Bureau's response to the fair cattle trade investigation that the USDA released their report for last week. So before we get to that, Ashton, what news are you watching on the day? Well, we've been talking a lot about these mysterious seeds coming from China, and I have a little bit of a wrap-up, I guess. It, it might be the end, who knows just yet. But China is actually offering to help the United States investigate the unsolicited seed packets sent to Americans through the mail. China's foreign ministry says their postal service has contacted the U.S. Postal Service, asking it to return the seeds to China, calling the packets faked mail. It says information labels on the packages appeared to be forged. The USDA and agriculture departments in more than two dozen states are warning recipients, of course, not to plant those seeds. And the USDA says it will test them. Some in packages marked jewelry, but also says they might be part of a brushing scam out of China to obtain fake reviews for products. So I guess China, I don't know where they're suggesting to send these seeds back to, but I think they are trying their best to help out the U.S. try to uh, figure out really what the uh, what the issue is with these seeds. All right, I'm going to get a little conspiracy theorist on you, Ashton. You ready? I'm totally ready. Well, I think what one argument you could make is that perhaps these seeds were well received, right? We've seen a lot of uh, the media to the hold of this story. We've seen some speculation that perhaps this is a bioterrorism measure or China is trying to infiltrate the United States farm ground or just our ground in, in general with these seeds. So one possible theory could be that China is now stepping in to say, oh, hey, you know what, just send those back to us because they don't want USDA or whoever to test these seeds, find out that, hey, yeah, indeed, this is the case. These are invasive species. And then we have another little problem on our hand. You know what? I can definitely see where you're coming from. I do think it's a little sketchy, to be completely honest. But uh, who knows? I guess I guess we really won't find out what could have happened if someone planted these. No. So. No, maybe somebody has planted them, though. So like I said, we're still searching if anybody's received these seeds. I haven't heard of anyone. I've seen some people posting on social media. If you have received these seed packets, let us know on, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Ag News Daily. We'd love to hear what they look like. You know, have you planted them? That kind of a thing. So please reach out. But in other Chinese-related news, on Wednesday, China officially rejected the United States claim that China has failed to comply with a 2019 WTO ruling against China, and more specifically, their price supports for wheat and rice farmers, which they say those subsidies in turn hurt U.S. farmers on the international market. Uh, the U.S. recently requested that the WTO authorize 
to hit China with countermeasures worth about $1.3 billion. And China rallied against that request on Wednesday during a WTO dispute settlement body meeting. And so it's still a little unclear whether or not the WTO will agree that China is not complying with the original ruling handed down last year. So essentially last year, the WTO found that China was not complying with their measures, that they, indeed their price supports were helping their wheat and farmer rice farmers have a higher inflated price and gave them some specific measures to follow. And now the U.S. has come back and said, hey, it doesn't look like they're actually following these measures. We want you to do a little more digging. So at this time, we don't know what the WTO is going to issue or do, but that is something we will definitely keep an eye on. We certainly will. And I have a little bit of ethanol production news. Ethanol production has jumped to the highest level in more than four months and stockpiles increased last week, according to the Energy Information Administration. Output of the biofuel increased to an average of 958,000 barrels a day in the week that ended on July 24th, the EIA said in their reports, and that's up from 908,000 barrels a week earlier and the highest level since the seven days that ended on March 20th. All right. Well, that's good. That's a good little update from yesterday's discussion of ethanol. And I want to keep the measure here on ethanol, keep our finger on ethanol. We take a little bit wider here to talk about biofuels in general, because as we know, we've seen, uh, I believe it was the Senate release, or maybe it was the House. I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, we saw one of those two entities release kind of another round of COVID-19 relief payments, largely for agricultural producers. The question being, of course, whether or not ethanol and biofuels would be taken care of during that next round of relief. We are working or I should say more specifically, Ashton is working to get in contact with Senator Grassley's office since he's largely been one of the guys spearheading this. But we also saw Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association Relief, release a comment saying that this new round of relief is a little unclear about whether or not ethanol producers would benefit from being included as a, quote, agricultural processor because the bill released on Monday, that initial kind of draft released Monday, does include agricultural processors to be part of that COVID relief package, but it's still unclear whether or not ethanol producers and biodiesel producers will be considered agricultural processors. So Ashton, let's make a little mental note here that if we do get Senator Grassley on next week, we make sure and ask about this point in particular. Absolutely. And um, we will be talking to Senator Grassley next week. Locked that interview down. So listeners, stay tuned for that interview. But uh, Delaney, what other news are you keeping an eye out on today? You know what? I'm still trying to completely unpack this story. I pulled it up right before we recorded the podcast today. So I haven't had time to fully digest it, but it's still something I think, especially our dairy farmers should be made aware of. I know we've got a few that work with uh with Dean Foods and Dairy Farmers of America. And we saw today the Department of Justice says that the Dairy Farmers of America cannot use a law designed to equalize farmers' bargaining power with corporations handling agricultural products to protect themselves from antitrust claims. They said 
in their court filing. So this court case we're referring to here involves more than 100 Northeast dairy farmers who opted out of a $50 million class settlement in 2016, alleging that DFA and its marketing arm had compromised, or excuse me, had conspired to monopolize the fluid milk market in the Northeast. And so Congress then passed, or excuse me, Congress back in uh July issued a brief, or more specifically, the Department of Justice issued a brief saying that according to an, an act that was passed in 1922, so a long time ago, um, it would be consist- inconsistent with this act's text and purpose to allow a defendant to use it as a shield when it acts as a food processor or exercises monopsony power to harm individual farmers. So we're, like I said, still unpacking this. There's a lot of legal terms in here about what is or is not going to happen. And I'm sure that we'll have at least a few dairy farmers reach out and correct me if they have any inside scoop in this. I know we've got a few out in the Northeast area, Michigan area that uh, listen to the podcast. So we'll have a little bit more of an update on this tomorrow, but just something I wanted to make our listeners aware of. But I tell you what, Ashton, that is it for my news. What else are you watching today? I am all done with my little bit of news. What do you say we uh, hop into the markets and then get into our conversation with Scott Bennett? Absolutely. Let's do that. And taking a look at the markets for today, corn was trading lower most of the day as well as soybeans, but thankfully finished higher on the day. September contract up a quarter of a cent to close at 3.15 and three quarters, while the December contract up a half a cent to close at 3.26 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, the September contract up two and three quarters cents to close at 8.87 and a quarter. The November up three and a half cents today to close at 8.88 and three quarters. Wheat pulled back after their strength on the day yesterday with the September contract cut four and a half cents to end at 528 and a quarter. The December shed three and a half cents to end at 535 even. In the livestock pits, green across the cattle complex as the August contract put on 27 and a half cents to close at 101.72 and a half. The October up 70 cents to close at 106.75. In the August feeder cattle contract up $1.05 on the day to close at 143.02 and a half. The September added $1.85 today to close at $144.42 and a half. In the lean hog markets, weakness continues as the August contract shed $1.65 to close at $51.42. The October down $1.50 to end the day at $48.32 and a half cents. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, July contract up 12 cents on the day to close at $24.54. The August down 35 cents to close at $20.81. Without further ado, let's kick it off to our conversation with Scott Bennett of the American Farm Bureau Federal. Today on the podcast, we have Scott Bennett, Director of Congressional Relations with American Farm Bureau. Scott, thank you for coming on the podcast to talk to us today. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So before we get into our conversation about the cattle market report and the investigation done by the USDA, I want to ask you more about what your role really entails with American Farm Bureau. So can you tell us a little bit more about your your day-to-day tasks? Absolutely. So uh, my current role uh, at American Farm Bureau Federation is Director of Congressional Relations. So as you can imagine, uh, I, you know, especially during pre-COVID times, would be on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., 
at USDA, at EPA, uh, and at the White House, uh, you know, right, rather frequently. Um, we advocate, obviously, for um, our American Farm Bureau members. Uh, American Farm Bureau, uh, the, the Farm Bureau family has 5.9 million members. We have uh, 50 state farm bureaus in, in uh, Puerto Rico, and we uh, are the nation's largest um, whole farm uh, advocacy organization uh, in, in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, we have we're very well respected on the Hill. Uh, we're very pragmatic in, in all of our policy and everything that we advocate for uh, comes from the grassroots. Uh, now, a lot of people wonder, you know, how does somebody like me advocate for the needs and wants of a farmer without understanding it? And I, I love that question because my father, grandfather, two uncles and a cousin make their full time living uh, on a cattle farm here about four hours south of the nation's capital in Southside, Virginia. I was born and raised uh, on an Angus, uh, Hereford and Gelby cattle operation. I graduated in Ag Econ at Virginia Tech. I returned home to our family farm, farmed full time uh, for several years. Uh, but the opportunity to come to Washington presented itself and uh, I was eager to, to see what it was about. I took that opportunity. I worked at a small consulting firm for four or five years uh, in, in the livestock atmosphere. Uh, and then uh, around the 18 Farm Bill, uh, when, the, when the discussion and debate around the 2018 Farm Bill really took place, uh, I had the fortunate opportunity to run the Washington, D.C. office for the then Judiciary Chairman, uh, Bob Goodlatte, who's a former mm -hmm. Ag Committee chairman and represents the district in Virginia, just a few miles uh, west of where I grew up. Uh, then about uh, after, after the employment there, he retired from Congress and I needed a new job. And the director of congressional relations at American Farm Bureau presented itself. And my portfolio is primarily uh, livestock. So this is my bailiwick. I love talking about cows all day and to be able to advocate for uh, our, our farmers and ranchers across the country on Capitol Hill gives me a lot of pleasure. And this particular issue, talking about fair trade or the fair cattle markets, definitely is one it sounds like hits home for you, being from a cattle farm. Scott, you have been quoted in a few articles saying that this cattle market report put out by the USDA is a good first step toward fair markets. But Tell us a little bit more why it's just a, a first step here. What do you see as the actions that need to be taken now after this report was released? Absolutely. I think it's important for folks to, you know, understand the timeline that we're working on here. So August, I believe it was August 9th, 2019, uh, the Holcomb, Kansas Tyson beef plant caught on fire. Uh, very fortunately, no one was killed. Um, I think that it, it was a blessing. Uh, but six percent, between five and six percent of the weekly slaughter capacity was in that one plant. And so at the time, we had never seen really anything like this happen before in uh, the packing industry. And when you take six percent of slaughter capacity offline, uh, again, this is think about it. It's about August 2019. These plants are running wide open, getting ready for Labor Day. Um, 
it was it, people felt the world was ending in the beef markets. We saw the box beef cutout spike. Um, you know, everyone uh, went back to this the discussion of you know the the consolidation of the packing industry. Uh, we saw box beef cutout rise, and of course the return to the producer, um, you know, wasn't necessarily there at the time. So USDA initiated uh, after Holcomb, they said, we're going to look into this. We've got to figure out, you know, what was there anything? Uh, was there any shenanigans happening? Um, so they started an investigation. Uh, as you can imagine, people all across the countryside were asking for this investigation. So they started it. And at the time it was going to uh, be concluded at the end of 2019, first of 2020, um, it got delayed. Um, and then COVID-19 hit and we saw, you know, the volatility in the cattle markets happen all through uh, the first part of coronavirus. Uh, so USDA announced, they said, well, we're doing this investigation on Holcomb. We're going to just lump in and add on to that uh, the coronavirus, the, the COVID-19 volatility. So they did that. And now we have this document. Uh, it came out a week ago. And, uh, you know, we've taken a look at it. It's, it's also important to realize, and if you look at the document, this, this USDA report on I mean, the, the formal title is Box Beef and Fed Cattle Price Spread Investigation Report. But uh, in the third paragraph here, uh, it says, and I'm going to I'm going to read it. It does not examine potential violations of the Packers and Stockyards Act. So everyone that was thinking that there's going to be a verdict come out of USDA guilty or not guilty about, you know, why the markets were so volatile. This simply doesn't address that. And it also says the investigation into potential violations is ongoing and therefore AMS, USDA, has limited ability to publicly report the full scope and status of the investigation. Now, if you read this document, um, which I encourage everyone to, it's an easy read, uh, to be honest. It walks you through how the markets reacted to both Holcomb and to uh, COVID-19. But the real the real uh, point and, and probably the, the part that's going to be of most interest to people um, starts on page 14 of this. And it's it's called other considerations. And there's kind of four highlight highlighted uh, you know, points and topics here. And it goes through potential policy suggestions, things that could be done legislatively or administratively. Um, in Washington to potentially address these vo the, the volatility of the cattle. So uh, the current state here is American Farm Bureau is taking a look at these other considerations, and uh, we, we will address those other considerations and potential policy um, considerations moving forward. Uh, I so will have... Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so I was just going to say to clarify then, Scott, when you look at those other considerations and kind of where USDA left things, does American Farm Bureau and with your role, do you step in then and, and try to connect those dots or help them implement policies and procedures at a government level? Is that part of your role then to help them kind of fix or create a solution in this case? Absolutely. Um, and that's that's maybe a few steps ahead of where we are right now. 
what we're going to do at American Farm Bureau is take a look at these other considerations. We're going to understand them. Uh, some of them are going to stick. Some of them aren't. Uh, other trade associations uh, in Washington and outside of Washington are taking a look at these other considerations, going to figure out, you know, where their organizations stand. Uh, and and then the time and the opportunity to approach senators or members of Congress and say, hey, we've got this idea. You know, this was in kind of the suggestion of this idea was in a USDA report. You know, would you be interested in uh, creating a piece of legislation that would turn that consideration into into law? Um, I have to be remiss not to mention that 62 days from today is the end of the fiscal year for the federal government. And it's also when mandatory price reporting uh, reauthorization, uh, it, it, it needs to be reauthorized by the end of the fiscal year. So, and, and I hope folks are familiar with mandatory price reporting. That's the weekly reports uh, that come out on cattle trade. Uh, there's, this is the publicly available information that people derive uh, and people look at when they talk about the cattle markets. Uh, it has to be reauthorized every five years. Um, when it comes up for reauthorization, there's an opportunity to change or tweak or whatever the case might be there. Um, you know, at American Farm Bureau, we don't really, um, we don't see any major needs for, for any reform with mandatory price reporting. We largely think it, it works the way it should. But, um, you know, it's important to realize that these other considerations are now put in front of legislators and the public with 62 days before mandatory price reporting needs to be reauthorized. So the timing here is, is uh, you know, from our perspective, very good. A little more time to take a look at these considerations would be nice, but we know we have two months um, to take a look and implement, you know, any changes we may have for mandatory price reporting reauthorization. I hope that made sense. And you can ask some questions I can clarify when we go from there. So, Scott, after reading through the considerations, are there any specific actions or anything that you are wanting to see enforced immediately or what what's the next step, I guess? Yeah, so um, the four and I'm flipping through it right now, we have price reporting and transparency. There's about a page here that uh, USDA outlines, you know, how uh, price reporting works. And the transparency there and some some changes that they could make administratively and they allude to some potential, uh, you know, fixes or, or changes or tweaks that would have to be done legislatively. The second one's risk management solutions. And I think that's really important. It's not really controversial at all. Um, I think everyone would agree, uh, you know, your small cow calf guy uh, and your smaller feeders. You know, they, they typically don't hedge or use risk management maybe like they ought to. And when you see the volatility in the cattle markets, they're the ones that really get pinned uh, and, and have to suffer the loss. So uh, the second one here, risk management solutions, is just simply uh, making folks aware of opportunities that they have to hedge or, or manage their risk in the cattle business. And I think that's something that uh, you know, education, education, education 
you know, we don't need necessarily policy changes all the time. Sometimes the solutions are there. We just don't know they exist. And these risk management solutions uh, oftentimes are there. And we just need we just need folks to be educated on on them and and use them. Uh, you know, another thing that really happened, and I could go on and on about just the what happened in the marketplace during COVID-19, but one of the things that really rose to the top was interest in small and very small packing plants, packing capacity, custom kill slaughter plants. Um, you know, and obviously when you see a big plant like Holcomb go down in just one fell swoop, and when you saw... Uh, during COVID, when the employees there, when the line workers at these plants were testing positive for COVID-19, they, you know, they had to shut the plants down. They were completely, and there's no, there was no packing capacity. I mean, I think the Greeley, the Greeley JBS plant was down. I can't even remember now. It feels like years ago, but uh, it was down for a while. And that's one of the biggest plants in the United States. And you go to the grocery store and there's no meat on the shelves. And so folks were like, well, what what do we do? And then you go to your local little slaughter plant, your custom kill facility, and they're booked until in the case of the little custom kill facility that uh, is near me and down near Gretna, Virginia, uh, until February 2021. So, I mean, there was no just the whole supply chain just got jammed up. And part of the these solutions here are looking at, you know, we need to get some of these small and very small packing facilities federally inspected. We need to make it a little bit more robust. We can't necessarily rely on these really big packing plants that are massive and extremely efficient. And as maybe maybe the thought process is we need to look back towards some of these smaller packing facilities, custom kill plants. Um, and then and then the final one is you know, Packers and Stockyards Act updates and enforcement. And, you know, there's this is kind of like the cherry on top as far as I'm concerned with the look at um, the the policy um, or the considerations here. And the really one that sticks out is is at the very end here. And it says, you know, um, and I'm going to read directly amendments to elevate certain packer conduct to criminal violations and provide the secretary of agriculture with the tools necessary to carry out appropriate criminal investigations may also be right for consideration. So to sum that up, USDA can investigate, you know, the, these, the volatile cattle markets, but they, if they find something, they can't necessarily criminally uh, persecute or, or press charges. Department of Justice can do that. And we know the DOJ has an investigation going on. The CFTC, uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, uh, that monitors, you know, the futures market, they're looking into this volatility. USDA is as well, but they don't, they can't press charges if they want to. And here, as you, as it says here, may be right for consideration that, you know, we give, if, if there's an appetite for it, and if it's politically feasible, given the Secretary of Agriculture authority to conduct criminal or or to, you know, to look into carrying out appropriate criminal investigations. 
Wow. Well, Scott, this has definitely been a lot to unpack, but I think you've given us a lot of things to chew on. And it's very evident that you're passionate about this subject in particular. But just wanted to thank you one more time for coming on and educating our listeners on the Farm Bureau's stance and and just shedding some more light on this issue in general. Hey, thank you guys so much. Um, Hopefully I could join you again. I really enjoyed it. and, And I wish you all the best. To those folks out there in the countryside listening, you know, there's somebody in Washington that's not totally washed up in the swamp. We're looking out for you. <laughs> Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. It sounds simplistic, but always wipe or spray clean any dipstick or fluid fill cap before you remove it. Most of the dirt and grit enters a liquid system at the dipstick and fill point. These particles are extremely abrasive and are responsible for a rapid increase in wear. When working on any piece of equipment when finished, check the seating of all dipsticks. It is common for it to become slightly dislodged by you unconsciously contacting it while working on something else. With today's crowded engine compartments, many a system has been ruined from a poorly seated dipstick. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineryDigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles where steel and soil meet. Well, like you said, Delaney, it's a a lot to unpack that conversation that we just had with Scott, but it was definitely very clarifying for me. And he is a very interesting guy. I'm sure we'll have to have him again on the podcast in the future. Yeah, he was fantastic. And like you said, I appreciated that. You know, he's not from the swamp, as he calls it. And uh, still, it sounds like has a pretty good idea of what's going on in rural America being so closely connected to his family's farm. Absolutely. And guys, if you are ever looking for some more interesting interviews with folks that we talk to in the agriculture industry, you can find them at agnewsdaily.com and you can follow along with us on social media at agnewsdaily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.